This is an ABC podcast. On the ABC Listen app, your smart speaker, and on AM radio. This is the Conversation Hour on ABC Radio Melbourne and Victoria. Do we need to change our attitude towards apartments being our forever homes? The price gap between apartments and stand-alone houses has widened by 45%, and that gap has happened just since 2020 and January of this year. So even though housing affordability is getting worse and out of reach for most of us, The logic tells us that we still want houses more than we want apartments. So why? Why are we pushing ourselves beyond what we can afford for a house instead of an apartment? For a lot of people, flats and units are seen as a stepping stone or as an investment rather than our long-term home. And does that need to change? Good morning. My name's Rochelle Hunt, your co-host this morning, Daniel Miles, joining you from ABC Warnable. Dan, I wonder if this is a uniquely Australian thing that our mm. attitudes towards apartments need to change, but is it our attitudes that needs to change or is it the design of apartments that needs to change. Yeah, good morning, Rochelle. This is a really interesting one. I was thinking about this earlier, and I mean, we have to preface part of this conversation by saying, you know, if you own any kind of home in Australia, you're one of the lucky ones. But Mm -hmm. real estate, and I mean, in the last few years in particular, feels like it's been bonkers, to use the the scientific term, especially since the pandemic. I mean, I know in regional areas around where I am, prices for homes in particular have just gone ballistic. We've got young couples and families, particularly around here in the southwest, that have been priced out of towns Mm. that they've lived in for a long time. Because, you know, in regional areas, we often don't have the swathe of apartments that are available in more metropolitan areas. I mean, we're in a position now, we've got booming populations, booming price houses, and that logically means that the next step is an apartment. That That's the natural step that you take. But that in, in its own raises that question of how do we make sure that that next step can be a forever step. It's not just a stepping stone to that larger dream of the, the white picket fence and the, the four-bedroom home that perhaps generations prior may have had it easier getting absolutely and the thing is apartments have so much to offer they're often closer to Mm -hmm. shops and to public transport the security is often better there is zero maintenance you can sort of lock up and leave but then you start to think about okay can you have a growing family in an apartment how are they built and designed can you the term that we all like to use now age in place so if you're thinking mm-hmm. of this as your forever home how many stairs are there in an apartment you know do we need to think about older people and apartment living there's high density there's medium density there's build to rents there's cooperatives oh. there's so many different ways to build an apartment so today in the conversation hour is it our attitudes or how we build apartments that needs to change so that we can start to see them as our forever home. On the ABC Listen app, your smart speaker and on AM radio. This is the Conversation Hour on ABC Radio Melbourne and Victoria. 
Good morning, Michelle Hunt and Daniel Miles with you as we look at our changing attitudes or design towards apartments as our forever home. Joining you in the studio to discuss this today, Dr Michael Fotheringham, Managing Director of the Australian Housing and Urban Research Institute, and Simon Knott, Principal Architect of BKK. A warm welcome to the two of you. Michael, let's start with some of the data that's coming in from CoreLogic. They have showed us that in the last four years, even though houses, so standalone houses, are becoming so out of reach for most of us, most of us are still striving for a house rather than an apartment. Well, that's right. I mean, it, there's, some, there's some interesting sort of diverging trends here where we're getting growing numbers of single-person and, and two-person households and they're largely moving into apartments. But then anyone with any, any family unit or, or household that's more than two people are looking for a freestanding house. And, and so we're increasingly seeing this, this trend where we see houses as what you live in as a family and apartments just for when you're on your own or just a couple. And, and there's really no need for that to be such a, a clear cut. Also joining us in the studio is Simon Knott, a principal at BKK Architecture Firm. Simon, when we're talking about apartments, are we designing them properly? What's the big the hindrance to people calling these smaller spaces home? Uh, I think they are. I think there certainly are apartments out there on the market um, that are built for families. And it's interesting when you see young architects kind of design their first apartment buildings, they always say, well, we're going to make them bigger. We're going to make, you know, we're going to make better. They're going to be for families. They're going to be. And um, the problem is in the way the real estate market works here, both in terms of sales, but also in the build, it's usually derived off square metre rates. And the bigger the apartment, the more it costs, even if you're really just building the space in between. I mean, they still have a kitchen, they still have a bathroom, they still have, you know, the same stuff goes into them, but you're just building bigger areas of them. It's not a direct correlation, but it gets factored in that way. And, you know, if, you, if you're looking at a, a family apartment, it's usually sort of 130 square metres plus, um, and that's going to cost you, in today's market, sort of $1.5 million plus. Uh, and people are saying, well, actually... You know, there's, there's always been this with this tension. It, people are only really in Australia going to move into apartments when they see it as a cost-effective way of buying into the real estate market over houses, over freestanding houses mm. generally, um, notwithstanding what Michael said, because I think there are lots of different factors in there and there's different reasons why people move. There's also barriers to why people will move between the two because of... Um, because of stamp duty. I mean, I know lots of people are so I'm just not going to go, it's going to cost me, you know, sixty, seventy, eighty thousand dollars $80,000. Why would you? We'll get into body corporate fees in just a moment because the moment we said apartments, we got an onslaught, <laughs> right? An absolute onslaught of messages saying yep. because of body corporate fees. Michael, one thing that I've noticed over the years that we've slowly seen a disappearance of is the unit, the single level small <laughs> unit that has everything that a home has, even like a little courtyard. You've got your own end entrance there would generally be a driveway down the middle and you might have four either side they were really big actually where I grew up in the Latrobe Valley you don't see as many of them anymore is that just because no. it's not cost effective but, well that's right I mean you know you used to get you know a little cul-de-sac with with six or eight of them just yeah. circling it a sense of community from from the neighbors actually mingling together with sort of almost shared front yards but separate backyards and and you're right we don't see that as much anymore because um, it just doesn't stack up financially for the developers to that's build a them. loss isn't it because they lifestyle-wise, what they offer 
it's pretty special. Absolutely. I mean, you know, there's, there's that close-knit community that you get from from that sort of setup. that, that yes, we, we've lost. Now, now those would be the same place would, would have either a cluster of townhouses with separate entrances and, and no shared sort of space. There would be no... Is there a body corp fee on that style? Uh, it depends on how it's set up. Usually, yes, some, but they usually drop right down because you don't have the same sort of lift and maintenance issues and things like that. There's a really interesting report that Jane Francis Kelly did for the Grattan Institute in, I think it was 2011, on building the houses we want. And I, met, I feel like I've been talking about this for about 15, 20 years. I feel like I've been talking about <laughs> it my entire thing. life. And, she, and she, they basically identify that there's two ways we build uh, apart dwellings in Australia. It's either right out on the outer suburbs on, you know, on these housing estates or big apartment towers in the city. That starts to sort of bleed out a bit to the inner city of apartments but there's a great gap in the middle um in if what and th- those are the sort of houses that people want people who uh have lived in um at sub- middle sort of suburban rings their whole life would quite happily sell their big family home on a big lot of land mm. if they could find something to move into in the area they love they want to be in their community uh they want to stay near their family um, and they perhaps don't want all the maintenance and things that come with a big house and security and a whole lot of other things so we'll mm. get into that as well Absolutely. This on the text line. Hello, Rochelle and Daniel. A huge part of the problem is apartments are not very nice in Australia. They're pokey and small and usually thrown up quickly to make a buck. In Europe, apartments are commonplace like small houses in their proportions, which is obviously what we're talking about. Helen from South Melbourne goes on to say, older Art Deco apartments here in Melbourne are similar in in scale, but so rare. Who wants to live in a shoebox? If... Apartment living is something for you. Give us a call. We'd love to hear from you. Just like Anne has done. Anne's living in St Kilda. Good morning. Anne, what caught your ear when we started this discussion? Well, I was really interested that fam- you know, point about families and not wanting to live in an apartment. I We moved into an apartment uh, when our kids were about 12 and 15. So we had our teenagers and we've, uh, we live in a fairly big apartment um, and three bedrooms and open living area and uh, uh, bathroom, two bathrooms, etc. So we've actually wow. really loved it. And the fact that you can lock it up, it feels secure, it feels safe has been a, a real bonus for us. Is it a newer style? I mean, there's lots of different apartment style of apartments in St Kilda. You've got lots of beautiful deco style apartments in St Kilda. You've got some high rises, mm. some medium density. Is it a newer or an older style? It's sort of, oh gosh, it would be, it, unfortunately it's not our deco. I'd love that. It's probably been built in the 90s, but we renovated it when we moved in and it's just a really lovely living space and you know the people in your building um, uh, you know, yes, I heard the thing about the owner's corp, but then I don't have to worry about doing the insurance and all of that sort of stuff. So it's got some real uh, bonus to it. Good to hear. And I know, I know when the kids used to bring people round to uh, to our place, it wasn't like everyone else was living in. And they used to think we lived in a hotel. So <laughs> <laughs> there's something nice about that as well, Michael. The days of like Anne in St Kilda. I mean, you just think about visually of St Kilda, heaps of apartments, but three bedrooms, two bathrooms. Oof. I mean, now you'd be talking. 1.5 mil or something for something like that. Well, a lot of towers, you'd only get that on in the penthouse levels at, yeah. at, a, at a premium, you know, penthouse price. So, you know, I, I think that's one of the shifts we've had is that we're increasingly building smaller apartments. Um, and, and, you know, the way the development system works um, in Australia tends to be about selling off the plan. So a developer will set up a site. Their feasibility for the site is, is based on a, on a price that they're expecting. And, and so once they've sold enough 
apartments within it, they'll actually build it. And, and that leads to trying to get as many smaller ones as you can crammed onto the site to make it feasible. So where yeah. does developers and state or federal government come into this conversation to say, okay, you know what, we need to change how they're built and we need some stricter regulations and laws around the fact of if your kitchen, you, if you you know, some apartments, you, you're sitting on your couch and you could probably turn the kitchen sink on from whilst you're sitting on the, on the couch and on the other hand, you could probably open the bathroom door. Like, do we need to change the regulations and laws? Well, this is where zoning comes into it. And so you can you can have zoning rules that require a minimum size of apartment, um, you know, make them all two and three bedrooms or make them all have two bathrooms if you like. But, of course, every site that's already been purchased by a developer has been done with a set of assumptions behind it. So that, that becomes a long-range solution. You need to sort of grandfather that in so existing properties mm. can build to the rules mm. that they were purchased on. That's one side of the argument that we, we really need to cover. Lots of texts coming in and calls. Jill's given us a bell from East Malvern. Good morning, Jill. Good morning. Look, I when we downsized in 2001. We're in our 70s now. We've moved into what they were deemed is a cluster housing group. So we've got um, eight units. They're all discreet. And most of everybody's got two bathrooms, so it's really good. Two bedrooms, two bathrooms. We've got two living spaces. It's great. But what we're finding now is two units have been sold in the last 12 months and a young couple in their 30s, early 30s, who are due for a baby any minute now, and another couple a month ago or about to move in, they've moved in with a 16-month-old. So you've got so a village. Finding the, well, it is a village. We have a common area um, and we have, you know, get-togethers every month or so in the common area. Oh. The road from us is a similar set of units. Um, obviously, when they were built, they were built in the late 80s, um, people were going for that style of apartment. The other apartments that are going up now um, in East Melbourne, in our vicinity, are all two or three or five stories. So it's really it's very different because we're, we, we call ourselves the old people's home. <laughs> <laughs> because, but now we've got the young ones in as well. Like one I love it. And I know out. exactly the type that you're talking about, Jill, those ones in the 80s. As we age, Simon, not we we want people to be able to age in place. We want mm. people to be able to stay safely in their homes for longer now because of all of the pressures of aged care. Where do we begin with that? But as Jill said, it's kind of rare to have that cluster of eight or so apartments. It is uh, what, what a wonderful story there. That, that is, you know, that is the the way housing really should be about developing community and, and developing in place. And um, it's fantastic to see it working well. Um, look, a good anecdote is a, a project we probably did about. 12 years ago in East Ivanhoe and apartments were not th that common in that area when we were there. It's pretty leafy, green, lots of houses. And when we designed it, all the real estate agents, this is a problem, they're all largely dictated to by sales by real estate agents who really are sort of selling what they sold last week and not much, you know, really kind of imagination about beyond that. Um, all of them said you need to pull this down and make them 45 square metre apartments to sell overseas to Chinese investors. That was the, you know, Malaysian investors, wherever they were. Um, and completely opposite of what we were wanting to do, which was a new type to the area, pretty much, and create sort of diversity and, and larger family homes and larger spaces in there. Luckily, our developer clients listened to us and they're very experienced. They said, no, we don't agree with this. They got a local agent, sold them all in two months and got a 15% record for sales in the area mm. because it was something that could translate. And there was a whole lot of 
people who had these big thousand square metre sites that didn't want to do gardening all weekend, wanted to go and travel, want to lock up and, you know, they're retirees, go travelling, go around Australia for three months, do whatever. And they are incredibly secure, uh, low maintenance. And you, if you design well, you design a really good, strong sense of community. So you're not in isolation either. So that's a really important thing for mm. ageing in place. So many calls for board. We'll try and get through as many as we can. Text, it's almost going to be impossible to read them, but we'll give you just a couple of them. This says, my husband and I are in our mid to late 60s, rattling around in a large family home. Would happily move to an apartment if one existed which suited us. Large but fewer rooms, a lift more than one, if it's more than one storey, a little bit of outside space near transport and amenities as well. But the dreaded body corporate is also a negative. That's from Julia. As we talk about whether or not we need to change our attitudes or the design towards apartment living and seeing them as a place where we want to potentially live forever. Joining you on this conversation, Dr. Michael Fotheringham, the Managing Director of the Australian Housing and Urban Research Institute, and Simon Knott, Principal of BKK Architects. Michael, lots of people who are saying, look, I'm sort of getting later in life, I would like to move, but there's just too many restrictions or it feels too difficult. Do we need to see this, you know, we say ageing in place, what role do apartments play in that conversation? Oh, a really important role in that place. And I, I think one of the misperceptions that, that tends to occur is people think ageing in place means staying in the family home you, you brought your kids up in and, and you know, rattling around, as, as, as one of the texters called it, um, in, in that family home when there's just the two of you. And, and in fact, ageing in place really refers to living in the community in an appropriate dwelling for you. So it might be downsizing to an apartment or a unit of some type, but rather than moving into residential aged care or, or the more institutional modes. So... But st- Staying in that mm, community. Forever. Yeah, community so it doesn't well. have to be in the same home. I'm, I like that as a concept. Yeah. Anecdotally, we're seeing maybe families taking over, the younger fam- the kids taking over the family home and maybe they move, their parents move down the road. So you can all you know, start to work within the same environment, which is a, another real positive. So many texts, so many calls. This on the text line from Deb. Nothing wrong with apartment living. I'm about to move into a well-designed 60-square granny flat. None of us need huge living spaces. They're too expensive and too much to maintain. Thanks for your thoughts, Deb. Uh, Gail has given us a call from Springvale. Good morning, Gail. What would you like to say? Hi, good morning. Uh, I live in a block of six units in Springvale. It's a single-level, three-bedroom, two-bathroom two car spaces and quite a bit of outside private space out the back. Wow, sounds gorgeous. Oh, it is. And it's in a really quiet spot in Springvale, uh, a nice part of Springvale. And I have agents ringing me all the time, begging me to put it up on the market. They say that's what the market in this area needs at the moment. And there just aren't any. There's lots of new developments, you know, double level, uh, three bedroom, two bathroom, but people don't want the double level, especially older people like me. If I'm going to move out of there, I I will move into an apartment because I don't want the maintenance and everything else. I'm in my 70s and I don't want all of that now. I think that, and the more they keep knocking on your door, the more you want to stay because you know know you're onto something really good. But that's interesting. I mean, that's what people want. Sarah's in Burwood. Hi, Sarah. Hi. um, I'm just calling with regards to the comments that's been made about maintenance and body corporate fees. I find it a little bit concerning how many people complain about the high body corporate fees. But 
the body corporate fees are there because you're not responsible for all of your own maintenance. I mean, if you had been living in a freestanding home, you would have spent that mm. money on maintenance for your home. I guess lots of people, though, would be thinking, and this is a bit of personal experience of mine from some mm-hmm. time ago, there's body corporates and then there's body corporates. There are, yeah. Okay, <laughs> and it depends on who's on the body corporate, whether or not you can get onto the body corporate and whether or not body corporates thinks that duct tape is an appropriate way mm. to fix a downpipe. Yeah, sometimes it's less about the fees for the body corporate and more about the behaviour of mm. the body corporate and, and reaching agreement. And, and, you know, those rules are about having 75% agreement for any major initiative on a, on a shared space is quite a barrier. But Sarah is right in that if it runs well, Simon, they're great. But on average, it's, do yeah, they? It's a very poorly regulated area uh, of housing um, and there's, uh, yeah, there's lots of examples of that being mismanaged, about funds being mismanaged, about people managing it in different ways. And um, I, I think that it's safe to say they don't always have the best interests of all the people in the complex at, at heart. I just, just recently, some friends of mine wanted to go and look at an apartment in St Kilda. Um, it's a two-bedroom apartment and it was 12 thousand dollars a year body corporate fees for it and i saw it's just so we just i just said well look here's a simple calculation and what that you're foregoing in a loan and basically the difference was them going into a small um house timber house so in, when in we Northcote, start to talk know. about we need medium density housing mm-hmm. the bigger the blocks get the more services that those blocks get does that naturally mean then michael that it pushes the body corporate rate up well it can i mean once you're sort of four stories or more and you're having to put in a lift there's a there's an obvious maintenance cost that comes with that that's that's much more than than if you've just got a group of single story units so the built form does generate costs and 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 you know the, the number of tenancies or, or, or households in that development um, is a and, complicated factor. Uh, and I think the way that the market set up a lot of developers, and not all, we can't put all developers under one umbrella because I've worked with some who are fantastic and do really think about long-term maintenance. Uh, but there are, you know, the way the system is set up, basically as soon as they've sold them off the plan, a lot of developers are sort of one foot out the back door and they don't really care. Um, so the, it, it is set up in a way that doesn't encourage that. Build to rent hopefully will start to change that game in terms of sustainability and long-term because someone's holding the asset over a long period of time so they will start to think about maintenance much more and a lot of this also when we're looking at apartment living what we're hearing resoundingly on the text line is community we've got this uh, from linda in Docklands. such a great conversation i live in Docklands in a three-bedroom apartment i started my day doing aqua aerobics and i was talking to the ladies about how many people don't know what it is like to live in an apartment people are always interested to visit. On my floor, there are three couples, a young family and a 90-year-old. We know the neighbours and there's a great community environment in our area. We're happy living so close to Mm -hmm. the city, so much easier to maintain than our house in the suburbs was, and the city and surrounds are now our backyards. That's from Linda in Docklands. Such a great perspective. Uh, Simon has been hanging on the line very patiently in Morwell. Thank you for your patience, Simon. Uh, What would you like to add? Well, I'd just like to say I cannot think of a single reason that apartments are better than a house. The market is clearly telling us this, as your headline said. Mm. Despite all the alleged advantages of apartments, people still want to have a house. And the reasons are pretty fundamental. Number one, who wants to be living next door to a party wall with some other nerk that you have no control over, (laughs) playing their loud music at all hours of the day and night, or the roof, or underneath you, God Mm. only knows. 
Then we go to the body corporates, and I don't care how well you run them, I don't care how cost-effective they allege to be, the fact is you have zero control. When the body corporate decides the driveway is going to be done, it's going to be done, whether it suits you or not. If they decide it's not going to be done, whether you need it or not, it's not going to happen. But noise is an interesting thing, Simon, that you raise. I remember my sister-in-law's apartment. It was like a little pseudo-house. It was beautiful in the heart of Paran, but the people above her decided to rip up the carpet and have floorboards. I'm telling Mm -hmm. you, that was just like you had someone walking on your roof and she had to say to them, could you take your shoes off, please, when you're home because I can't sleep. Noise comes into this. Yeah, I mean, they should be built to a standard and as soon as you change those things, then you're not living up to that standard. So, I mean, it theoretically shouldn't be available. I mean, but there are, and we've got townhouses and uh, Victorian terraces and people sharing party walls and, and space. That's been going on for, you know, a couple of hundred years here since we started building, really. So um, I don't think that's a new thing to deal with. I think one of the biggest issues really is about um, the, the the idea of a house as a, as, as a wealth creation vehicle um, and the real driver of capital gains um, is the land. It's not the house, it's not the apartment, So people are thinking, land. why am I spending yeah, $800,000 and I don't own the land? I mean, it is shown that the house will improve more in capital. So if you, you know, if the way our taxation system is a lot about it, about negative gearing, about capital gains, everything we know about it is, is pushing houses up. We need greater supply into the market to really But that comes down. back to that wide lens conversation around how we view our home. Mm. Is it an investment? Is it a home? Mm. Well, that's right. I mean, and, and I would also say that the noise issue is not unique to apartments. There's plenty of houses mm. that have plenty of noise from neighbouring dogs, lawn mowers, and, and and loud music as yes. well. That's that's certainly not unique to apartments. In fact, some people find apartments quieter because they're well built and, and have decent soundproofing between them. And then I guess, Michael, as well, the other part of that question is houses do appreciate in value, but a lot of the the housing dream is beyond a lot of people now as these prices go up. So, do we need to change the way that we look at apartments because that is for a lot of people, the only financially affordable mm. option because housing is just, it's so out of reach now. Well, that's right. And, and so I think really what we need to be doing is rather than thinking of two forms, which is the freestanding house and, and, and the apartment in dense living, but really thinking about a, a broad range of options. And, you know, we've talked about some of the sort of smaller unit developments that have smaller clusters. And that sort of approach of townhouses and, and smaller units is, is a part of this as well. And really we re- need diversity of housing offerings all across our cities. And also greater greater rights for renters too, because I think that that is a big difference between say here in Europe, where you get huge numbers of of the population renting, is they have much greater rights over a long period of time, and you know even simple things like pets and other things are really straightforward. But if you take an example like uh, Tokyo, these really mega dense cities, um, people have a different attitude towards it. Where you might live in a smaller space, but you don't expect to have twenty people or fifteen people or even five people over for dinner. You'll meet them downstairs. You know you'll meet them in the bar downstairs or the bar. Communal and spaces so just, and yeah. how we build is something I know that you're really yeah. passionate about. And that's yeah. where we're starting to see a little bit of a shift of the of the model. Yes. The, so the Nightingale model, for example. Well, the Nightingale did it famously with uh, with laundries. You know, the sort of, a, what is it, four square metres or five square metres of laundry space. They sort of said, well, do you want to have everyone to have one of them in their apartments or to take that space and build a communal roof terrace that has communal laundries, which then became a better space, but it also came a space where everyone hangs out because you're sort of, you know, you're sitting out there waiting for your, your, your dry to be done or whatever it is, and then just a space that everyone started to use. So it became, rather than the leftover space, a really fundamental part of it 
it. And we're seeing that now with uh, build to rent because the thing with build to rent that's different is, as I said earlier, that the client is holding this thing for 40 years or so as a superannuation fund or whoever the investors are and they want to see near to 100% um, um, occupancy rates of the apartments. So they'll spend a whole lot more money on other things to keep people in there and to keep people attracted to that place and not moving around. So so there's a real emphasis in building great communal spaces, lots of um, lots of extras for, for people, but they do come at a price too. So This, we sold our three-bedroom home in the far outer suburbs to buy a small apartment in, the, in a relatively inner suburb of Essendon. We haven't looked back. It's lock and leave. Great location near the tram, leafy parks. I'm not spending every weekend doing maintenance and forever mowing lawns. The body corporate fees cover the building insurance so it all works out in the wash. That's from Gordon in Essendon. Rochelle Hunt and Daniel Miles with you as we look at apartment living. Even though houses are more out of reach for most of us, we are still buying houses more than we are buying apartments. Dr Michael Fotheringham with you, Managing Director of the Australian Housing and Urban Research Institute and Simon Knott, the Principal of BKK Architects as well. The idea of less apartments and building them well, this was done, right? If you look at apartments in the 50s and the 60s and the 70s, I spent a lot of time living in a 1970s-style apartment. There was a big entrance hall. There was a separate toilet. There was a big green space out the back. That green space wouldn't be there now because you could fit more apartments on it. I mean, we did build them well. What happened, do you think? Uh, well, uh, you might have better figures on than me on this, Michael, but I, certainly the cost is a big issue, uh, cost of land and cost of actually building. Um, and th- that used to be maybe five to ten years ago, I think, you know, sort of 20-odd percent was a kind of good margin to get on, a, on, a, on a, as, as a profit. Um, that has come right down. And now and I, don't, I think this is – I don't know how you resolve this problem. The cost of building is so high now um, that they just don't stack up. They, unless people are willing to pay a lot of money for apartments, so the big premium ones, the luxury apartments, they'll stack up. And people who, you know, baby boomers who are moving out of a house they've had, you know, with a lot of equity in it um, can afford them. Um, but, yeah. It is really tricky to make it stack up. As I said earlier, I think the first project I worked on, this was in the 90s as a 20-something-year-old, as a was we were designing two-bedroom apartments in the Herald and Weekly Times building for 220 square metres each to a two-bedroom apartment. So they were huge. It's big, that's much bigger than my four-bedroom house in Northcote. So, and then, you know, we've come down right down now to, I mean, I think the ones now probably with the bad guidelines about 75 to 80 square metres. So, um, so you've come right down in size mm. because that's what you need to still see at the same, you know, at a cost, but um, people can't afford it. So it's very keenly sort of, um, sort of couched between this kind of idea of a, of a sales market and the people within the market, uh, developers, um, real estate agents, and other people, they talk about product. That's how they describe it. It not is a product, <laughs> and no. you know, it's a, it's not a great way to think about what is a fundamental human right. Kathy has given us a call in Bayside. Good morning, Kathy. Are you an apartment liver? Yes, I am. What do you like about it? Um, well, we're very, very well um, situated, close to shops. I can walk to everything if I need to. Um, everything's very convenient. We're about four kilometres from the beach, um, so that's very nice. We've come from the hills, from the Dandenong Ranges, so I love the forest. Um, that was very lovely. So I said to my husband, I like the forest or the sea. I don't like all <laughs> the stuff in between. 
but um, it was very, very hard thing. How to did do. you find adjusting, Kathy, going from what would I could imagine, you know, a, a relatively big home to an apartment? What took you by surprise? What did you like? What took you a while to get used to? Um, well, we had lived we lived overseas for quite a while. Our last, probably in the last fifteen years, we'd spent nine years in Singapore living in a condominium. So I was quite used to apartment living. And um, the thing was, we're getting older um, and our house had become, we've had four, well, we have four children. It was quite a large house, a lot lot of gardening. And it was just really getting a bit much for us to manage. So having lived in an apartment, I was used to the idea of living in an apartment. And the biggest thing was missing the forest. But I thought, well, I have got, it's not going anywhere. I can always go. (laughs) Go Yeah, that's right. That reference to overseas, there's a lot of text saying, you know, I I lived in Tokyo, which is one, Simon, that you mentioned. Would you say, Michael, that this resistance, it's changing, but is this a uniquely Australian thing? It is is a fairly Australian thing. I mean, in Europe and in in Asia, living in apartments is absolutely normal and and really the the dominant form. Um, In North America, it's, it's a little more like here, but one of the differences, I guess, between our housing system and, and the US and Canada is it tends to be that, that freestanding homes are, are for owner-occupiers and apartments are for renters. Now, there's condos are an exception to that and they're a sort of growing form as well. But but the, the tendency in Australia that, that you can't tell driving past a house if it's a, if it's a rental or if it's an owner-occupied house, same for apartments. There'll be a blend of owners and renters within any given um, apartment building. So, so you know, we, we tend to mix them up in a, in a different way and, and that's, that is a bit unusual. What we're seeing, though, I think, is a growing acceptance that apartments are a part of the yeah. mix and, and a more diverse supply is, is, is what we need. Well, I think there's different communities, too, and we're, you know, we're now seeing uh, millennials are the biggest voting block uh, in, in Australia, so there's a, you know, there's a lot of them and more, more, com- more, more kind of coming into power, I guess. And a lot of that kind of age bracket are saying we want to live in a city. You know, we'd much rather live in Brunswick in a smaller apartment than out in the suburbs. So where do NIMBYs come into this? Lots of people saying, well, hmm. it's the NIMBYs. NIMBYs and the planning system. So we want people in the inner cities or the leafy, leafy suburbs or wherever it may be, but people are like, well, not next to me. This is one of the challenges. So if, if we take an existing middle ring suburb that has re- relatively large blocks with single houses on them and, and frankly not very efficient use of the land, it's all very leafy and nice, but it's not necessarily very Yeah, there's three people that live there. And it means <laughs> that we're all generally travelling further to where we get to go and taking spending more time in cars and on transport. So, so one of the things we can do is to, is to subdivide those blocks or to build you know, a small number of apartments on what used to be one house. Um, and it's a much more efficient use. But yes. Small uh, number, although I remember a, a long time ago, there was a big old house that was pulled down. So in Elwood. Mm-hmm. And the house was pretty old, needed to be pulled down. An apartment block went up. And I was, because I'm nosy, and I chatted to the builder. <laughs> I was walking past. I said, How many apartment blocks are going in here? And he said, 23. Mm. There was one house and then there was 23 apartments. Now, I'm not saying that's a bad thing, but all of a sudden you've gone from having three neighbours to, well, 23 
possibly double that depending on how many people are in the apartment. Yeah. We usually do some sort of uh, community engagement as part of uh, you know, apartment projects and it's really interesting. Like it comes across quite often and people say, we, look, we understand. We understand the need to build more houses, but, you know, why can't you just do this out of Craigieburn or somewhere else? You know, do we don't, we, we don't want it here. Yeah, we just don't want it in, in our backyard. But they also, it's quite interesting to talk through the economics of it. We did a townhouse development and there was real opposition to it in this street. And they thought, oh, it's going to be slums of the future and all this sort of stuff. And we said, oh, no, well, no, well they're going to sell them for 1.5 million. <laughs> and they were sort of, you know, the jaws dropped. And I said, so if you think about it, your house over there that's on three times the, the size of land, what's that going to be worth is this is one and a half million. And they suddenly start doing the sums and people can start to understand <laughs> that. And I think also understand the, differently, right? <laughs> the <laughs> benefits of higher density living. A lot of people like to live in those places where the cafes are and everything else. Well, that's right. And, and I guess it's worth balancing this out that, yes, we do get opposition from, from what we call NIMBYs, the non-in-my-backyard crowd. But there's also the YIMBY crowd, the mm. yes in my backyard Yes, crowd. and that's growing, isn't it? <laughs> it is absolutely growing. We're seeing more and more people saying, look, we need to change the system. We can't just keep spreading our cities wider and wider apart. It's getting unaffordable. We actually need to have more diversity, more smaller units. Um, in our suburbs. And, and to be fair to the NIMBYs, uh, to, be, <laughs> to take the other side, we've only had the BADS uh, guidelines here, the building apartment design guidelines for building better apartment design guidelines for about 10 years or so. Yeah, There's a lot of really bad apartments that have been built in middle ring suburbs and everywhere else and I can understand the alarm at some people saying, well, we don't want this. Sydney has been way ahead of Melbourne for um, decades now on legislation, guidelines. Uh, mm. You're mandated to have an architect um, on board. You're not and uh, space, in right? So they, well, they, they just better design guidelines around setbacks and acoustics and quality wasn't materials. Wasn't there one stat that came out that some of the apartments were being built, like so prison cells were bigger than... <laughs> I'm not joking. I think yeah. this is fair yeah. income. Yeah were bigger than some of the so-called studio apartments. The problem is when you always just come down to size. Like, there's some fantastic examples of really small um, studio sort of apartments. If they're lo- well-located in high-density areas um, and well-designed, they can be great. And some of the latest Nightingale ones at Nightingale Village, they've got them. I'm not to be a big advocate for them, but they're a good example of exploring different um, ideas. Are fantastic. But quite often, I mean, I've seen somewhere there's no hardly any windows, you know, your windows coming in off the kitchens. But, yeah, like, they're terrible. So... Mm. We're listening to the voices of Dr Michael Fotheringham, Managing Director at the Australian Housing and Urban Research Institute, and Simon Not, a Principal Architect with BKK. Simon, you picked up a really interesting point there. These are guidelines on how to build mm. beautiful apartments. Do we need to, or could you ever see it taking that step from guideline to legislation to restriction, something that's a little bit more enforceable, perhaps. Oh, these are enforceable. The BADs um, are, are an enforceable um, way to build apartments. They're part of the mm-hmm. building code, so you need to be you need to demonstrate that you're part of that part of the planning system and the building code. Um, mm-hmm. So you have to you have to do that to a standard. But I think um, we, we will probably, I reckon, we will probably. Two, one or two decades behind in bringing them in in Melbourne and we'll probably need some re- more regular updates to get to better quality and I think that would give people some comfort and I think you'd get to a point where you could have an as of right development. If you meet all these criteria then you can just build it without a planning permit. You just go ahead and build in it. We need to supply more. There's no doubt. We're, we're going to be in dire straits in, in a few years time. 
uh, otherwise. It's, it's crisis now, but we haven't been building apartments really for the last couple of years since pre-COVID levels. So um, it's, uh, it's dire straits. Lots of questions around parking and parking being an issue, but even how we view and use cars mm. is changing now. And the amount of people on tech saying, well, I don't need my car as often or we got rid of one of our cars because there's a tram or a train out the front now. That's a very inner city concept. Yeah. I mean, we also need to think about the regional yes, yes part of no. our state. Yes and no. I mean, I think it is a changing perspective. I think, I think you know, young people are increasingly not owning their own car but are using share services and using public transport, using e-scooters or a range of other ways of travelling. And, and so the need to have a certain number of car spaces per apartment can be a bit of a barrier to, to developing more apartments. Um, you know, in, in some parts of Sydney, there are exemptions on that, particularly where it's close to public transport. So, you know, if, if you've got an apartment that's near a train station, does it need a car space for every Well, yeah. haven't and, we seen more and more apartments being built right along the train lines? Yes. Whereas once that would never be done, but there is a lot of land along our pub, along our train lines all the way into the regions, and that's a shift. Well, there was a great study done by City of Melbourne probably a decade ago or so where they looked at all the train corridors and said, tram and train, and they said if you just built five or six storeys, which is sort of the great sort of Paris kind of Barcelona, comfortable height of apartments all along those corridors, just one along either side, you could solve all our housing till 2050. Wow. So, you, I mean, you could you can do it. I think, I mean, certainly car share and things like that. We, we use car share and it means we're a one-car family. I think they're also the most costly parts of apartments is the subground is you know, going a, a, a below ground. It is also the huge carbon footprint of building concrete underground. So if you can get rid of them, it's going to make your apartments cheaper. As the token regional voice here in the conversation, I have to sort of try and zoom out and think about how we can approach this in in regional Victoria. A question for both of you. Do you think we'll start seeing more apartments in regional Victorian mm. cities where we do have available land? We already are. It's, mm. it's, it's certainly happening more and more. And, and, you know, during COVID, there was obviously a shift of, of a lot of people moving to the regions when they could telecommute and you could work, work from home, deciding they actually want more space. But... With that has become, I guess, a more demanding housing market in our regions. And and with that, people are thinking about, well, what do I need? And particularly for those who are ageing, the same sorts of decisions as as in the big cities come into play. The the only challenge is that it still costs exactly the same to build, if not more, in the regions than it does in the city. So you have to reach a price point and it's whether people are willing to pay that price point. Are they willing to pay the cost? What's the resistance like in the regions, do you think? Because people say, well, I moved to the country for peace and quiet and to get away mm. from neighbours? Like, does it go against the whole principle or does that need to shift as I well? I mean, I don't think you're going to see them in, in places like Trentham or those kind of, you know, small little country towns which people love. But, but certainly, Bendigo, Ballarat. But certainly Bendigo, yeah, Ballarat and those sorts of places, absolutely. I mean, they're fantastic. They're walkable. See, they're built before, you know, they were built, designed before cars were, were intended. So they're great walkable cities. They have a lot to offer. They're sort of a mini version of Melbourne, really. And people like them a lot more. I know lots of people have moved to those those regions. And because they're designed like that, there's always somewhere to tie up your horse, which is an advantage <laughs> that people don't think about. <laughs> Mark has given us a call from Cheltenham. Good morning, Mark. Yes, good morning. Thanks for taking my call. Uh, interesting, you just touched on regional. I'm uh, doing a large development in uh, uh, in Warrnambool, and um, it's a, a good example of how you can create something a bit different by having a community centre and lots of open space. Uh, oh, interesting. And, so you're and, a developer, and, are you, Mark? Yes, I am. And we had a very great relationship and, and great support from the local council. Uh, they embraced the concept of a more community-style living 
rather than just a simple block of apartments. So tell us and about, so there's a community space, is there? So what's what's got this over the line for the locals in Warrnambool, do you think? Um, I think because there's high demand for housing, but also it's not just about the housing, it's about the lifestyle you want to create. And I think that your architect guest um, has already mentioned the fact that if you create these sustainable places and use energy efficiently, provide low cost of electricity, etc., you can create a very efficient and, and a happy community. So I've Mark, had another situation... Sorry, go on. That's what I was going to say. What's stopping people from doing this more often, more frequently, having these, I guess, throwbacks to what it feels like some of the apartments that we've been discussing throughout the hour where you've got a smaller number of apartments with larger communal spaces and the, and the chance to have a community? What's stopping this from becoming more frequent? I think it's the price of land, um, the pressures on the developers to try to make a profit out of it because you've got to prove a certain profit to the banks before they'll lend. Mm. Uh, There's a lot of different pressures. But the other example I've got is one where I think the pressure of uh, the the combination of NIMBYs and also councils not wanting apartments in particular locations makes it very challenging for developers to get projects through. How do you Uh, go for workers in the regions as well, Mark? Sorry, for workers? Workers, like staff. We know that we've got staff shortages and trade shortages all across the state. Yeah, I think down in Warrnambool, we've been very fortunate that there is a large local community of trades and they are more willing to work locally than to travel to probably Geelong or even Melbourne uh, where they may be able to claim higher fees, but staying locally means that they're closer to family and have a better lifestyle. Good to hear from you. Local councils, dare I throw that into the mix? Because every council, like, they're their own little... We haven't touched on that. And, look, they're largely... I mean, I think there is is not a great incentive for a lot of those councils to approve development. They usually get elected on the basis that... And and I'm generalising greatly here, obviously, but they get get elected on the basis of being anti-development, of protecting the status quo, because that's what their constituents want. Um, So... We've had numerous, numerous examples where the executive and council have approved, you know, they're planning, all their all their experts have approved a development, the heritage people, and they voted down at council because there's no incentive for them to actually approve it. They'll, they'll happily say to their constituents, oh, we voted this down. Yeah, so uh, th- that is a real problem. I do think it's shifting, though. I, I think, you know, 10 years ago, you didn't hear from, from local governments ab- about housing affordability, about homelessness, about you know, those sorts mm. of concerns. But mm. these days, many local governments have a housing and homelessness plan, are, are taking it much more seriously and are really looking for local solutions. That is true. They are. There is a pressure to change there. There is. In terms of seeing it rather than as glass half empty, glass half full, where there are lots of local councils, I think, Michael, as you just said, that are trying to take solutions into their own hands. So on one point you can say, well, they've got too much control, they've got too much freedom here, but, you know, there are councils that are saying, okay, well, I can think of a couple in the regions, for example, Mm -hmm. where they've lifted restrictions on being able to put tiny homes in your backyard. Not all councils have done that. So the power can be used for good. Absolutely. And, and I, I think as community sentiment gets more concerned about the affordability challenges we're facing as a nation um, and, and looking for different solutions, then I think you know, local governments move with the times and, and mm. reflect that. And it's, it's not just affordability. We're, because of the pressures we're seeing now, it's actually people having a place to live. I mean, it's fundamental yeah. stuff because it's the people right at them. As always, it's the most vulnerable people that are going to suffer the most. And the housing crisis we're seeing now is really, I, I believe, is just starting. I think it's going to continue Gosh, on for some that? time. 
that's just made me feel sick. <laughs> well, we just well we just haven't built because like pre COVID they didn't really stack up very well. There was a bit of a downturn in property market, and then that stopped it completely. And now the cost of building has gone up so high, so developers are just not building at the same rates, and we're getting migration coming in at you know record levels. Um, and I don't have a problem with migration. I think it's a great thing for our country, but there's a huge pressure on housing, and it's not being solved in the short term. It's going to take and all and there's a lot of people that are going to fall out the bottom of that. Way to make us all feel really uh, bright and sparkly <laughs> as we come to the close <laughs> of this conversation. <laughs> it is it. I, just, today, I was just yeah. trying to press the urgency of it. I would say one of the positive ways you can do this, and it exists a lot overseas, is co-housing models too, where groups of people get together, and it's like a number of these positive uh, calls we've had today. They get together and design their own house and, and become their own oh, developer. That's a show for another day. We're going to yes. talk yeah. about that. We'll put that one on hold. Vienna has been on hold from Preston. Good morning. Thanks for staying on the line. Good morning. Um, thanks for taking my call. My partner and I, we're you know, 35, 36. We're high-income earners. We love living. We've always lived in Melbourne around Brunswick area, Thornbury. We're in Thornbury, Preston now. Um, and now we're expecting our first kid and we're like, where do we want to live? Um, and even with our incomes, we're finding that we, we cannot afford land or a house in the areas that we want to. Mm. And um, we've been looking at three-bedroom apartments and they just don't exist. Um, they do, they're really expensive, body corps extremely high. My partner's from France, and in France it's really common to live and raise a family in an apartment. Um, I was born and raised in Australia, but from an Asian background, and in Asia it is really common to raise yeah. a family in an apartment. And we're just finding that there's just so much stigma around um, when we start telling people. Oh, oh we, we haven't even touched on that, Vienna. The stigma of my husband and I had a very similar conversation, and people were like, but you yeah. can't raise a child in mm. an apartment? And, yeah, and like, you can't afford a house. A yeah. We can't afford a house. And um, and we, for us as well, like looking at our lifestyle, we want to be able to walk down to cafes. We don't want to give up our social life, you know, even after having kids. But um, the apartments that we're finding, they either don't have access to a park nearby. Um, so you're or, finding it um, tricky. The, oh, Vienna, we wish you all the best, you and your partner. And with the birth as well, I always say, yeah. may it be swift and may it be easy. <laughs> but Vienna, thank you. Stigma is something mm. we don't have long now, but just final comments. That comes down to attitude, I guess. Yeah. Does the stigma around apartments need to change? Absolutely. I mean, we hear that you can't raise a child in an apartment. That's not true. That's rubbish. You can't have a dog in an apartment. You absolutely can. <laughs> there are a lot of myths about what you can and can't do in apartments. And actually, you can do all the things you can do in a freestanding house. Is the stigma do, you can actually do lots more too in some of them where they provide a whole lot of other things. So once the once the attitudes start to change, we'll start to see that happen, not just in the apartment but also in the surrounding community. And if they're doing, governments are doing their job right, they should be, the amount of taxes they're taking from the developer to put into the development contribution fund should be providing those other assets like parks and things nearby. Dr Michael Fotheringham, Managing Director of the Australian Housing and Urban Research Institute. Thank you, as always, for your insights on this. And Simon Knott, Principal Architect of BK. Okay, thank you as well. Thanks, Will. Thanks, it's man. very timely for me, Daniel Miles, as mm-hmm. I was whinging about the weeds I had to pull out of my garden <laughs> over the weekend that I said to my husband, I miss our apartment where I never had to weed. So We're on the same wavelength. I did the exact same thing on the weekend. So yeah, I feel you. I feel you. But it's, then I was I felt guilt, right? It's a privilege yeah. to have weeds. So I it had is. to weed and try and put a smile.
smile on my face. Say thank you to the weeds. <laughs> As always, Daniel Miles, thank you. I'll speak to you next week. Thank you. Don't forget the Conversation Hour is a podcast. We've done a lot of programs on housing, on apartments, on social housing, on architecture, on regional architecture. So if you enjoyed today's program, subscribe to the Conversation Hour. Go to the ABC Listener. Speak to you tomorrow.